New York, this is Democracy Now! We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. A shipment of U.S. arms has arrived in Israel as an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza now appears imminent following Hamas's surprise attack that killed 1,200 people inside Israel. Meanwhile, the besieged Gaza Strip is facing a humanitarian catastrophe as Israel intensifies its bombing campaign that's already killed over 1,000 Palestinians. I've never seen airstrikes like this time. Not in 2014, not in 2008. No war was like this time. I've never seen anything like this. Every minute and every second, there are airstrikes. We'll go to Ramallah in the occupied West Bank to speak with Mustafa Barghouti of the Palestinian National Initiative and to Tel Aviv to speak with the Israeli journalist Gideon Levy of Haaretz. Then we host a debate between two leading progressive activists on U.S. funding for the war in Ukraine. We'll speak with Barbara Smith of the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign and Code Pink's media, Medea Benjamin. They'll also discuss U.S. military funding for Israel. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll in Israel and Palestine has soared to over 2,200, with at least 1,200 Israelis and 1,000 Palestinians killed since Hamas's surprise attack on southern Israel Saturday. The majority of Palestinian deaths are in Gaza. At least 18 deaths were reported in the West Bank. Israel's amassing some 300,000 reservists close to Gaza as it continues to pound the besieged enclave with airstrikes. Officials warn Gaza is on the cusp of a humanitarian catastrophe, as the territory's power plant is running out of fuel. The scale of atrocities committed against civilians continues to come to light. In Gaza, rescuers are still pulling bodies from the rubble as desperate residents seek refuge. They tried to escape death, only to find it. The occupation planes followed them from the east to here. They came to find shelter. They were taking refuge next to the stairs where it could have been a safe place. They targeted them and killed them. This is the blood of injured people. Some injured people were sleeping here. This is their blood. Here there was a mother and her children. We removed the woman in the evening and the children were martyred and we just took them out from under the rubble. Among the dead in Gaza are at least seven journalists. On Tuesday, media workers held a funeral procession for two of the slain reporters. Blue press helmets were placed on their bodies. The local press union said the head of its committee of women journalists, Salam Khalil, was killed alongside her husband and children when their home was bombed. Gazan journalist Plestia Alakad has been chronicling the war on social media, giving a rare first-person insight into the constant evacuations, bombings and deprivation faced by residents of Gaza. We all gathering at our neighbor's house, no internet, no electricity until now. It's around 7 p.m. We literally don't know what's happening in the world here. We're just listening to bombs. 
In Israel, over 100 bodies were found at the Be'eri kibbutz near Israel's separation barrier with Gaza. It was one of several kibbutzim attacked by Hamas fighters, killing entire families, including children. Meanwhile, at least 100 hostages—at least 100 hostages—are believed to be held by Hamas in Gaza. Among those missing are U.S. citizens. This is Jonathan Dekelchen, father of Sagi Dekelchen. Kibbutz Niroz is no more. It was destroyed in a barbaric, inhuman attack in which dozens of my friends, my neighbors were killed. Many dozens more are either known to be hostages or missing. I'm here speaking today, um, reaching out to my son Sagi, who grew up on the kibbutz, Sagi Dekelchen. Um, He's an arm length away in Gaza, evidently, but couldn't be farther from me and our family right now. President Biden spoke to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Tuesday. He did not urge restraint in Israel's response to Hamas's attack. Later in the day, Biden made public remarks about the conflict. This is an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. President Biden did not refer to slain Palestinians or the illegal Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories in his remarks. The first shipment of advanced weaponry from the U.S. arrived in Israel Tuesday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to land in Israel Thursday. We'll have the latest on the violence in Israel and Palestine after headlines. Afghanistan was rocked by another 6.3-magnitude earthquake early this morning in western Herat province, as local people are still reeling from Saturday's series of deadly quakes. The region's governor said today's earthquake caused huge losses, though it's not clear yet how many people were killed or displaced. Rescuers are still working to recover residents who perished over the weekend. This is one of the survivors. In some neighboring villages, dead bodies are still under the rubble. They couldn't pull the bodies yet. Some people have tents, and some do not. I have no tent. We cannot spend the winter here. It's believed at least 3,000 Afghanis were killed in the first earthquake this weekend. In Burma, at least 29 people, including children, were killed in a military raid Monday night on a refugee camp in northern Kachin state, near the border with China. The camp is home to people displaced by violence and was located just a few miles away from the headquarters of the Kachin Independence Army, which has been in a decades-long conflict with the Burmese army. This is one of the deadliest assaults on civilians since the military seized power in the February 2021 coup. The National Unity Government, which was established by democratically elected Burmese politicians ousted during the coup condemned the attack as a war crime. A spokesperson for the military junta has denied responsibility, though a recent U.N. human rights report found a, quote, seemingly endless spiral of military violence in Burma. In the Netherlands, climate activists are celebrating after lawmakers Tuesday approved a motion requiring the Dutch cabinet to come up with a plan to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. This comes after a sustained campaign by activists, including a nearly month-long blockade of a major highway. This is Lucas Vinips of Extinction Rebellion Netherlands. After a month-long of daily protests and more than 9,000 arrests, 
the Dutch parliament asked the cabinet to come up with scenarios for a phase out of fossil fuel subsidies. During this campaign, we, we achieved a transformation, I think, of Dutch society with three quarters of the people now wanting a phase out of fossil fuel subsidies and even a third of the people wanting an immediate stop uh, on fossil fuel subsidies, and that is the Extinction Rebellion demand. So, a big win. Activists say they're prepared for more action if the government fails to follow through on phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. The UN's World Food Program has resumed food distribution to 900,000 refugees across Ethiopia four months after suspending the aid. In June, the U.S. also suspended its food aid, accusing the Ethiopian government of weaponizing humanitarian aid as military units seize supplies. The World Food Program said it has fully revamped safeguards and controls to ensure the food reaches those who most need it. In related news, the U.N. Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide is warning ongoing fighting between government troops and local militias in Ethiopia is leading to a heightened risk of genocide and other crimes in the Tigray, Amhara, Afar and Oromia regions. In Niger, the first set of French soldiers have started to withdraw from the country after orders by Niger's military junta following their July takeover. In the capital, Niamey, residents welcomed the French soldiers' departure. Today, this batch of French soldiers who have arrived and who will, God willing, shortly be taking to the road to return home is only the culmination of a struggle that the people have engaged in. The people are on their feet to demand the departure of the French soldiers from Niger soil, because one thing is certain, Niger remains for the people of Niger. This comes as the U.S. formally designated the ouster of President Mohamed Bazoum and military takeover as a coup, suspending aid to Niger. But U.S. officials say they do not plan to remove any of its 1,000 military personnel from Niger. Embattled New York Congressmember George Santos was charged with 10 more criminal counts Tuesday. The superseding indictment accuses the Republican lawmaker of inflating his campaign finance reports, including fabricating contributions and charging donors credit cards without authorization. And Hughes Van Ellis, one of the last remaining survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, has died at the age of 102. As many as 300 black people were killed when a white mob burned down what was known as Black Wall Street, the thriving African-American neighborhood of Greenwood. The last two known survivors of the massacre are 109-year-old Viola Fletcher, Hughes Van Ellis's sister, and 108-year-old Leslie Benningfield Randall. In 2021, all three testified before the U.S. Congress in favor of reparations. This is Hughes Van Ellis. Because of the massacre, my family was driven out of our home. We were left with nothing. We were made refugees in our own country. In August, the Oklahoma Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal from survivors of the massacre whose reparations lawsuit was dismissed in July. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
Well, Gaza is on the verge of losing all electricity as Israel continues to bombard the territory while imposing a siege, blocking the import of all fuel, food and electricity. The death toll from Israel's massive bombing campaign has topped 1,055 Palestinians with over 5,000 wounded. Meanwhile, the death toll in Israel has soared to 1,200 following Saturday's shocking attack by Hamas militants. Another 2,400 Israelis have been wounded. Hamas is believed to be holding as many as 150 hostages. Israel's now preparing to launch a ground invasion of Gaza. Tension is also growing along the Israel-Lebanon border, where Israeli forces and Hezbollah fighters have repeatedly exchanged fire. Earlier today, a U.S. plane carrying ammunition landed in Israel a day after President Biden gave a speech at the White House where he reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel, but made no reference to Israel's bombardment of Gaza, which has reportedly killed at least 260 children and 230 women since Saturday. According to press freedom groups, at least seven Palestinian journalists have also been killed. Inside Gaza, residents say there's no safe place for civilians to go. This is Sama Abu Latifa, who lost her brother in an Israeli airstrike. We had fled from Abbasan, escaping from death. There were continuous airstrikes over our heads. They told us to come to Khan Yunus. We came to find death. If we stayed in our houses, we'd die. If we go on the streets, we'd die. Oh, my beloved brother, he fled from one place to another. Oh, my beloved brother, may your soul rest in peace. I have no people left except for two. God bless them for me. I hope to carry their children. Oh, my beloved brother, please, God, don't take anyone else. This is enough. I can't handle anymore. I hope I die before them all. Sama Abu Latifa went on to describe the scope of Israel's bombing campaign. She spoke from a nursery where her family has taken refuge. I've never seen airstrikes like this time. Not in 2014, not in 2008. No war was like this time. I've never seen anything like this. Every minute and every second there are airstrikes. Every minute there are martyrs in their houses, young people, children, all. I can't talk. I swear I'm so tired. We have never witnessed strikes like this time. We thank God when the day is done, but they say it will be worse. We wonder what else could happen to us. The coming days could be harsher. Our hearts will ache more for the loss of our loved ones. Meanwhile, tensions also high in northern Israel near the border with Lebanon. Hezbollah has claimed responsibility for firing an anti-tank missile at an Israeli military post earlier today. Israel has been shelling towns in southern Lebanon. Residents in northern Israel say they no longer feel safe. It doesn't feel very safe. Because if they came into our house and they did anything they wanted without any way of protecting ourselves, this is a very unsettled ground. This is not, you know, this is Israel. We are in the 21st century. We should feel secure. We should feel like we have a home to go back to. And many people in Israel, unfortunately, are not in this space. They don't have a house anymore. They don't have families. Uh, the lines for the funerals are endless. There is so much pain, pain that it's beyond explanation in words. This is truly a nightmare.
We begin today's show with Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, a Palestinian physician, activist and politician who serves as general secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative. He's been a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council since 2006, also a member of the Palestine Liberation Organization Central Council. He's joining us from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. Dr. Barghouti, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, if you can give us the context for what's happening right now, what you're most concerned about, we're talking to you in the occupied West Bank as hundreds of thousands of Israeli reservists are moving down to Gaza. What concerns me most, uh, Amy, is uh, this process of dehumanizing Palestinians, in which uh, Western government leaders, including President Biden, are participating. Dehumanizing Palestinians to the level that the Israeli army minister called us animals. And uh, Human Rights Watch was absolutely correct when they came up with a statement saying that this kind of description of Palestinians is nothing but uh, justification of war crimes on them. And that's exactly what's happening now. Uh, the first two crimes that are happening is the uh, Israeli blockade on Gaza, depriving 2.2 million people from water, food, electricity, and medical supplies, uh, depriving them from the possibility of normal life. Children are lacking water, are lacking milk. I get uh, calls from our people there in Gaza constantly. Patients who have kidney problems, in need for kidney dialysis, who could die in two, three days because they cannot get it. Patient with can patients with cancer who lost treatment uh, and other uh, sick people who are in very deep situation. Uh, this is not the only situation. In addition to that, the second crime that is taking place is the bombardment of Gaza with terrible airstrikes. You've just said that it took the lives already of 1,000 innocent civilian Palestinians. It slaughtered no less than 260 children. But the worst thing is that 250,000 people, already a quarter of a million people have lost their homes. Thousands of houses have been destroyed. High-rise buildings have been uh, smashed to earth. And uh, people don't have a single space which can be safe for them. I heard an Israeli saying that she wants to be safe, and I want her to be safe. But they also should remember that also Palestinians need to live in peace and security. And that is what's not there. More than that, Israel turned back to using what was prohibited, which is white phosphorus. They used it, as you remember, in 2008 campaign on Gaza. Now they're back to using it. It is a prohibited kind of weapon that is forbidden, but they use it openly and frankly. The more important thing is that Netanyahu is saying that Palestinians should be evicted from Gaza. He's preparing for a third war crime, which is ethnic cleansing of the population of Gaza. He said that every Palestinian in Gaza should leave their homes. He didn't say where to, maybe to the sea. But his spokesperson of the army made it clear. He said in a statement which became the top line in Yediot Ahranot newspaper, he said that all Palestinians in Gaza must evict to Egypt. These people, these criminals who committed 
ethnic cleansing against Palestinian population, 70% of the Palestinian people in 1948. 70% of the population of Gaza were among these people who were evicted from Palestine. Now they are subjected to the possibility of another transfer, another kind of ethnic cleansing that would empty Gaza so that Netanyahu can annex it. Now I understand after all these threats with, uh, with, with ethnic cleansing, what Netanyahu meant when he said that he will change the map and the order of the area for 50 years to come. Now I understand what Netanyahu did when he carried a map of Israel in the United Nations, in front of the whole world community. A map of Israel that includes annexing the West Bank, which is occupied territory, annexing Gaza Strip, which is also occupied territory, and annexing East Jerusalem, including also the Golan Heights. Nobody said a single criticism to that, except maybe the German government. This is the reason, this is the, the, this is the background of what's happening. But let me also say that what we see now in Gaza is only a result of a protracted problem of 56 years of Israeli military occupation of Palestinian land. How many times on your show, Amy, and on other shows, we said that the solution is to end Israeli illegal occupation of Palestinians, that the solution is to stop what has become the worst system of apartheid ever, much worse apartheid than what prevailed in South Africa at one point of time. How many times we said that building settlements in the occupied territories will destroy any perspective for two-state solution? How many times we complained about settlers' violence and settlers' terror against Palestinian communities? I find that President Biden, unfortunately, practiced, excuse me for that, but I have to say it, Mr. Biden practiced racial discrimination between Americans who carry Israeli citizenship and Americans who carry Palestinian citizenship. I did not see him say that those who killed Shirin Abu Akli, a very peaceful journalist who was Palestinian and American and who was never held to accountability, nobody was indicted for killing her. He didn't say a word about the American Palestinians in Tormus Aya, whose houses were burned and whose cars were attacked and whose lives was threatened by Israeli illegal settlers, some of whom also carry American citizenship. I don't want any Palestinian or any Israeli civilian to be killed. I am against that. I'm against killing children. But today and now, Israel is preparing a huge ground operation on Gaza. If that happens, it will be a total disaster. If ethnic cleansing take place, this will be a terrible, terrible, terrible disaster for everybody. And if the ground operation starts, it will definitely lead to the explosion in the north and Hezbollah getting involved. And maybe this will lead to a whole regional world. I think what we need here is a balanced, reasonable and responsible reactions and not continuation of dehumanizing Palestinians, accusing Palestinians of responsibility, even when Palestinians are killed. I think that Netanyahu doesn't care about his people. I think Netanyahu is the most corrupt, opportunistic politician ever. 
This man cares only about his position. He doesn't even care about the 150 or 200 Israeli prisoners now in Gaza. If he cared about them, he would accept immediately a ceasefire. He would accept immediately a prisoner's exchange so that these people can come back home safe. And Palestinian prisoners would be released, some of whom have been in Israeli jails for 44 years. This is the solution, and not to escalate. But Netanyahu knows. If any inquiry starts about what happened at the borders of Gaza, they will find him responsible for negligence, irresponsibility, lack of preparation, intelligence failure, military failure, political failure, and he will be sent out of the office, which means he will go to jail for because of four cases of corruption against him. He knows that. And that's why he's ready to kill anybody to stay in his office. This man doesn't care about the lives of Palestinians or Israelis. He didn't care about the fact that he brought to his government fascists like Smotrich, who doesn't hide calling himself a fascist homophobe, and who said that we will fill the West Bank with settlers and settlements so that Palestinians would lose any hope of a state of their own. And then they would have one of three choices, either to immigrate or accept a life of subjugation to Israeli rule, or die. That is the finance minister of Israel. And we didn't hear any criticism to that, neither from Netanyahu, nor from your foreign minister, Mr. Blinken, nor from any other Western leaders who are now, unfortunately, participating in escalating the situation rather than calming it down. The big question that Palestinians have, and this is my last point here, the big question that Palestinians have is, why the double standard? Why the United States and Europe sent to Ukraine $224 billion of equipment, of planes, of tanks, to fight what they say is occupation? And why, in our case, they are sending arsenal and money and support to the occupiers of Palestine? Why we don't see any sanctions uh, to, Dr. Bar- to force Barcudi, Israel want, to stop the occupation? Uh, Dr. Barkudi, I want to ask you, you're in the West Bank. Uh, what's been the response yes. of the Palestinian Authority to the attacks on Gaza? And also, if you could, for our listeners and viewers, if you could talk about uh, the the escalation in attacks on the, in the West Bank, uh, by both settlers and the Israeli army uh, since this extreme uh, uh, right-wing coalition of Netanyahu came to power? Since the attacks started in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes, there were uh, many, many uh, demonstrations in the West Bank, mostly peaceful, peaceful, all, all peaceful and nonviolent demonstrations, and the Israeli army responded with gunfire. Up till this moment, 23 Palestinian young people mainly, were shot and killed by the Israeli army without them engaging in any kind of military action. And that has been our life. You know, one of the main reasons why the attack happened in Gaza uh, by Hamas is the fact that during the last eight months before this whole thing started, Israeli army and Israeli settlers killed 248 Palestinians, including 40 children. And uh, now, in addition to that, most roads in the West Bank are blocked. Uh, two, there is 650 military checkpoints, many of which 
are totally closed to Palestinians. The only passage to Jordan is almost closed all the time. And Palestinians live in clusters of ghettos separate from each other. And people are extremely worried about what might happen. We've just heard that the Israeli army is devoting a whole division with tanks for the possibility of reinvading every corner of the West Bank as well. So uh, the, the most difficult thing is here is not only the army attacks on Palestinians, but also the settlers' attacks. And these settlers are completely crazy, and they are completely criminal in their attitude towards Palestinians. They've already burned so many houses, they've already attacked so many villages, they've already uh, killed so many Palestinians, uh, and that's the kind of fear and worry that we have. And how should uh, Egypt and other Arab countries in the region uh, respond? Well, before I respond to your question, I have one little uh, piece of good news, although it's painful news. Uh, you mentioned the name of the journalist Salam Mima was one of the seven journalists who were killed by Israel. Uh, luckily, but painfully, uh, this journalist was found alive after 31 hours with her three children be be below the rubble of their destroyed house. Unfortunately, her, her husband died. She is injured and her three children are injured. And you can imagine the horror that she went through being under the rubble for 31 hours, and only by luck somebody heard their voice. And this raises the question, how many, how many tens of Palestinians are now below the rubble, and nobody can try even to save them because the places are constantly bombarded. Regarding Egypt, I would say that uh, the Egyptians have two responsibilities. One is that they should not allow Israel to evict and ethnically cleanse Palestinians towards Egypt. This must not happen, and that, because I, 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 I warn you, if Israel succeeds in evicting Palestinians from Gaza now and uh, conducting ethnic cleansing, this would be an application of Smotrich, most extreme religious Jewish extreme position in the Israeli government. And it would mean that the next plan will be to ethnically cleanse the West Bank as well and throw Palestinians out of the West Bank to Jordan. These are not theoretical concepts. This is exactly what they say, what they speak about, about Palestinians, especially now after all this process of dehumanization of Palestinians. The other thing that Egypt must do is to provide support immediately to Gaza. We are ready to help ourselves, our people. We are ready to, to collect water, food supply, medications. My organization in particular, Palestinian Medical Relief Society, is already engaging in uh, preparing all these materials. We are ready to send them to Gaza through Egypt even, but Israel says that they will bombard any supplies that come to Gaza. Here, I think it is the Egyptian and international responsibility to stop Israel and prevent that from taking place. Dr. Baguti, we have less than a minute, but I wanted to ask about the relationship between the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, well known for the tension between the two, to put it mildly. Well, as you know, uh, Hamas, uh, as well as Jihad, are Palestinian political groups, uh, militant groups that are not in the PLO. 
but there are problems even inside the PLO. I think now the PA feels totally marginalized, not only by, because of what's happening on the ground, but also because of Israel that did everything to humiliate the Palestinian Authority. The Israeli army invades any spot that the Palestinian Authority should be in charge of, including Ramallah. And they cut off their, uh, the, our tax revenue. We pay taxes to the Palestinian Authority through Israel, and Israel uh, cuts away a lot of these resources. So the, the solution to this is nothing but unifying all Palestinians without exception. And uh, you know my stand, uh, I said it long time ago, what we need is after this war ends is immediate free democratic elections for Palestinians. And all polls show that neither Fatah nor Hamas will get a majority. Uh, nobody else will get majority. It will be a pluralistic democratic system through which groups like us who are non-Fatah, non-Hamas can try to do their best to push in the direction of democratic transformation but also that would allow Palestinians to coexist uh, uh, peacefully in a good political system. Uh, at this very moment, this sounds very distant, mainly because not only the PA did not hold elections, but Israel and the United States all the time refused that we should have democratic free elections. And that does not fit with all these calls everywhere and in other places about democracy. It's another type, another form of double standard. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti speaking to us from Ramallah and occupied West Bank. Palestinian physician, activist, politician who serves as general secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative. Next up to Tel Aviv to speak with the Israeli journalist Gidon Levy of Haaretz. Stay with us. Sing to the Wind by Nai Barghouti. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Netanyahu bears responsibility for this Israel-Gaza war. That's the headline of an editorial in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. The paper's editors wrote, quote, The disaster that befell Israel on the holiday of Simchat Torah is the clear responsibility of one person. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, who's prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters, completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession, when appointing Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir to key positions while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians, the Haaretz editorial said. We go now to Tel Aviv, where we're joined by Gidon Levy, an award-winning Israeli journalist and author, columnist for the newspaper Haaretz, member of its editorial board. His most recent piece is headlined, Israel Can't Imprison Two Million Gazans Without Paying a Cruel Price. 
Gideon Levy, if you can talk about how Israelis are responding right now, what you feel it's important for people outside Israel, especially here in the United States, to understand and to do. At this point, as 300,000 reservists uh, move along the Gaza border. Yeah, Israel is basically shocked, at least in the first one or two days, you could feel it everywhere. Nobody expected this unprecedented uh, uh, situation. It broke many perceptions, both about Hamas, about the Palestinians, yeah. about their capabilities, and about ourselves yeah. and our capabilities. But this is now put aside. People are still digesting uh, what happened. The more uh, time passes, the more horrible scenes are exposed day after day. I've been to the South uh, the day before yesterday, and I can tell you I've been so many times in the South in times of war. What I saw there was nothing like it happened in the past. But I must say that side by side with what I uh, mentioned here, there is also a big sense of taking revenge, a big desire to take revenge, and hatred toward the Palestinians is growing up to very, very dangerous levels. Same anger is also directed at the government, less than this at the army, but I think that the, gov the government, once this war will be over, hopefully soon, this government is going to pay a hell of a price and it will must go home. I don't see the situation in which Netanyahu continues and all the ministers around him, who are all of them, no one's fascists and they, part of them would have even been defined in Europe as neo-Nazis. Those people who called for all kinds of terrible things to do and did nothing to make Israel prepared for any danger and continue not to doing nothing. That's so astonishing that we are now the fifth day after the war and you don't see the government. They are still preoccupied with their own political careers, with all kinds of political manipulations. Nobody takes care of the situation. The army is preparing itself for a ground operation, but except of the army, I was in so many homes which were bombed, so many people who lost their, their beloved one. Nobody came to them. Nobody offers them any assistance. Israel is really falling apart from this point of view. And the man who governed Israel for the last 15 years is the one and the only one to be blamed before anyone else. This goes without saying. And I guess at six after the war, as we say, million Israelis will go to the streets and they will have only one demand. At least Netanyahu go home. If not, Netanyahu go to court and be sentenced for this irresponsible policy that you uh, have been uh, committing. Libya, I wanted to ask you the the uh, so according to press reports, as many as 1,500 uh, uh, Palestinian fighters of Hamas were killed inside of Israel. Uh, so the, the, uh, the enormous number of, 
of militants who were able to get into Israel. Could you talk about the decision of the government to relocate large portions of the of Israel's army from the Gaza border to protect uh, far right uh, settlers on the West Bank? Sure, that's that's one of the big of the big uh, failures uh, on Saturday. Not the only one, because the first failure is obviously the surprise, the strategic surprise. We are so proud about the most sophisticated intelligence in the world with all kind of those elite units, with all the devices. They know everything. They understand everything. And then an operation which was prepared for one year by hundreds of militants, they didn't hear about it. So that's the first failure. The second failure is obviously that the southern front with Gaza was totally abandoned because we were busy with all the festivals of Sukkot of those crazy settlers guarding them, but not only guarding them, collaborating with them with their pogroms among Palestinians. We have clear evidence that the army saw the pogroms and did nothing. And when the army is busy for years now, not only recently, only with running and chasing after Palestinian children who throw a stone and, and after all kind of uh, suspected Palestinians, when the army is overoccupied in standing in illegal checkpoints and penetrating to Palestinian homes in the middle of the night to arrest somebody without any, any legal basis, then this is the result. You get, instead of a professional, motivated, experienced army, you get a bunch of no ones who don't know to, what to do in, in, in such a situation because after the first shock, there was still, it took still hours and hours until the army showed up. And that's unbelievable. And this issue of uh, Netanyahu preparing for an invasion of, uh, of Gaza, the you talk about the immense uh, undertaking that this involves having to go literally house by house or building by building in Gaza uh, to uh, to find uh, any of the uh, any of the hostages being held. Uh, the, the enormity of this project. First of all, to go from building to building is impossible already because there were many buildings still down. And uh, I, I'm not sure that how many buildings were left, for example, in the neighborhood of Rimal. To find the hostages uh, alive, really, it's, a ni it's nice for all kinds of, of, of Hollywood films. I don't see it happening, for sure not with this army, with its capabilities, as we were witnessing it only on Saturday. The invasion into Gaza has some other uh, goals, namely to put an end to the to the rule of Hamas. And this is another impossible mission because you can kill the current uh, uh, top people of Hamas. You cannot kill the ideology of Hamas and they will always be replaced. The ground operation now is supported almost by all Israelis because Israelis understand that, that we have to do something after this embarrassment, after this catastrophe. But in the same time, I must tell you, I can ensure you that if Israel will go now for a ground operation, it will take a few weeks or maybe a few months. It will take so much blood of both Palestinians and Israelis, mainly Palestinians, obviously.
And by the end of this operation, you will invite me again to democracy now, and you will see that we are standing exactly in the place that we stood one week ago. Because as long as Israel continues to believe that Gaza, the problem of Gaza will be solved by the sword, solved by brutal force, by emotions of, of revenge, justified emotions, then we will get exactly to the same place. This vicious circle will not be solved by power, not be solved by tanks, and not will be, not will be solved, will it be solved by troops, only by a political agreement, and above all, and first of all, lifting this criminal siege for God's sake after 17 years. This siege was about to, to guarantee the, the security of Israel. So what happened out of the siege, except of the suffer of un unbelievable, inhuman suffer of two million people, what did it contribute to the, to the security of Israel, this siege? You see the outcome. We just have less than a minute, Gidon. I wanted to ask you the difference of the cry, the call of the families, of the hostages, of older people, of young people, of children, uh, the family members, one after another, talking about being, for example, a peace activist and saying, please use restraint. And the contrast between that and President Biden, as he addressed the nation yesterday, deciding consciously and in the readout of his conversation with Netanyahu um, a few minutes before he spoke, saying they did not call for restraint. Your response, how important is the president of the United States position here? We have less than a minute. In less than a minute, I can tell you, Amy, that last night when I was watching President Biden, I really envied you, Americans, that you have such a leader. I never thought so before last night. But last night, Biden was a real leader, someone that you can trust because he was extremely sincere and someone that you can rely on. If Netanyahu would have taken the same speech, he wouldn't be Netanyahu. Netanyahu is busy with politics, and here comes this Biden and tells Israel what Israel wanted to hear. I would love him also to say some things about the Palestinian suffering, the Palestinian agony. He ignored it totally, and this is very regretful. But by the end of the day, this is what Israel needs now, some kind of leadership, and it totally lacks it. Nobody is around really to understand that we have to go for a new way. Nobody is there. Gideon Levy, we want to thank you for being with us, an award-winning Israeli journalist and author, columnist for the newspaper Aretz, a member of its editorial board. We'll link to your most recent piece, Israel Can't Imprison Two Million Gazans Without Paying a Cruel Price. His books include The Punishment of Gaza. Coming up, a debate between two leading progressive activists here in the U.S. over funding for Ukraine, also a discussion about increasing funding, uh, military funding to Israel. Back in 20 seconds. Hello.
Clouds, teardrops. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. President Biden said Tuesday he'll ask Congress to approve emergency funding to bolster Israel's retaliation on Palestinians in the Gaza Strip after the surprise attack by Hamas. On Monday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said Congress could pass a single emergency defense spending bill in coming weeks for Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. In order to vote, Congress must move past political chaos after hard-right Republican lawmakers who oppose aid to Ukraine ousted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy last week and have yet to approve his replacement. For more, we host a debate on Ukraine military spending with two leading progressive activists. We'll also talk about increased spending for Israel. Medea Benjamin is co-founder of the anti-war group Code Pink, author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Code Pink's calling on U.S. lawmakers push for a diplomatic solution to the war in Ukraine instead of sending more weapons. Last week, 11 members of Code Pink were arrested as they occupied the office in D.C. of Vermont Independence Senator Bernie Sanders to call for peace talks. Also with us, Barbara Smith, an author, activist and scholar who's part of the Ukraine Solidarity Network, co-founder of the black feminist organization Combahee River Collective and author of many books, including The Truth That Never Hurts, Writings on Race, Gender and Freedom. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Barbara, let's begin with you. Uh, you are a black feminist organizing in solidarity with Ukraine. Can you talk about why? Uh, I know that some people—thank you uh, for having me, Amy, and hi, hi Medea, even though I can't see you. Um, I know that many people might wonder about that, because I am so known for the black feminist politics that we started building in the 1970s. But if people read the Combahee River Collective Statement, which was pub uh, written in 1977 and published about a year later, one of the things that's even in the statement is our— talking about solidarity with uh, other people around the world. We, the, uh, we from Kabahi, not every black feminist by any means, but my politics have always been internationalist. So because of where I live, I live in, well, it's actually Haudenosaunee, Mohican and Mohawk land, uh, unceded land in the capital region of New York known as Albany. But because of where I live, I uh, have friends. I've been politically active here for all the decades that I've lived here. And I have friends who were involved in issues around Ukraine last year. I was very mindful of what was going on in Ukraine, but I wasn't in any organization. And they were telling me about the fights in uh, and among people in our progressive and left communities right here locally, and how it was really very, very painful and very upsetting that people who had worked together for years, even decades, were now in disagreement about Ukraine. So there were informal meetings here, and they told me when they were, and these meetings were on Zoom. I didn't have to leave home. Uh, and uh, I went to uh, those local meetings, started going to those local meetings. We didn't have a name at that time. And then uh, people from uh, our capital region uh, were also participating, some people were participating in the Ukraine Solidarity Network. So that's how I got involved. But as far as why I got involved, it's because my politics have always been about fighting oppression wherever it might be. 
and whoever is targeted by oppression. And in this case, this war, this is a, an invasion. This is an invasion by an imperial power, namely Russia. And I stand with the people of Ukraine. Uh, and, and Medea Benjamin, could you talk... A, about why you have been persistently now calling for uh, peace negotiations uh, in Ukraine and also why you oppose the funding of, of, of further uh, weapons to Ukraine. Of course, much of that money is being spent to pay for uh, U.S. weapons, uh, basically for the defense industry. But there are reports now that President Biden is going to increase his request for Ukraine from the initial 24 billion additional he was asking uh, to as much as another 100 billion dollars that he is going to request from uh, Congress. Especially after your last segment, Juan, in hearing about the atrocities in Palestine and Israel. I just feel such a heavy heart about this military madness. Uh, there is no military solution in the case of Palestine. There is no military solution in the case of Ukraine. I think the sanest voices are coming from the global majority around the world that are calling for peaceful solutions to both of these crises. In fact, the president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, at the United Nations before this latest round of violence in Palestine came out and said that the U.N. needs two urgent peace conferences, one to deal with Ukraine and one to deal with uh, Palestine, because the world needs to come together to deal with what he called the mother of all crises, which is climate change. Uh, we have to get off this treadmill of military madness that only benefits the weapons companies and brings horror, suffering, death, destruction to people who are the victims of militarism. So as progressives, I think we have to come together and say to the Democrats, like Bernie Sanders, like to the squad, you know in your heart of hearts, in fact, Bernie Sanders, we read his own words uh, right before the Ukraine invasion, saying there needs to be negotiations. There are no military solutions to these crises. And I think for all progressives, and I'm uh, happy to be on with you, Barbara, about this, but I think you know in your heart of hearts that we have to find diplomatic solutions to these crises. And in the case of Ukraine, um, we have seen from Pentagon documents, we've seen from this latest counteroffensive uh, that the Ukrainians are not, quote, winning this war. Uh, they are losing so many of their soldiers, of their civilians. And that's why we formed this Peace in Ukraine coalition to bring groups together from uh, veterans groups like Veterans for Peace, World Beyond War, uh, Progressive Democrats of America, DSA International, uh, to build more of a movement in the United States to force the Democrats to join with those in the right wing of the Republican Party who are saying enough is enough. Stop funding and fueling this war. Let's find a solution. And, Medea, I wanted to ask you, we never hear—we almost always, when the war in Ukraine is referred to, the Russian uh, invasion as an unprovoked invasion. We, we're hearing the same now about the Hamas attack on Israel, that it was unprovoked. Uh, you have a clear stand on this issue. 
Well, absolutely. It's ridiculous to say it's unprovoked. And let's remember, unprovoked uh, doesn't mean that it's justified. We say that this is a provoked invasion, that the United States and NATO, uh, it, whether it's from uh, violating their agreement not to expand NATO uh, eastward and now surrounding Ukraine, uh, whether it's the U.S. involvement in the internal affairs to be supporting a, a coup in 2014 that overthrew a democratically elected government that was uh, had good relations with Russia and put one in that was anti-Russia, uh, or whether it was the funding of anti-Russian groups that uh, uh, Gloria, uh, Victoria Newland, the Undersecretary of State, uh, crowed about the U.S. spending five billion dollars to uh, create this kind of civil society. Um, the U.S. has been heavily involved uh, in trying to shape Ukraine to be a pro-Western, anti-Russian uh, uh, government. And of course, the U.S. would never tolerate having an anti-U.S. military alliance on its borders. We saw what happened in the 1962 Russian missile crisis. Uh, and then there we should learn from the lessons of JFK, who negotiated and came up with a compromise with Khrushchev and also said, when you're in a conflict with a nuclear armed country, never leave them with the option of either a humiliating retreat or the uh, uh, the use of a nuclear weapon. And that's exactly what we are uh, setting up in the case of Ukraine. We should be very, very concerned uh, about more funding of this because it is so dangerous. We've already sent in cluster bombs. We sent in depleted uranium. We're sending in longer range missiles. Um, it will be inevitable if this keeps going that it will affect directly a NATO country, which will invoke Article 5 of all of NATO countries getting more directly involved, U.S. troops getting involved, and increase the likelihood of the use of nuclear weapons. We I must stop the military madness. Barbara Smith, I wanted you to get your response to Medea. Yesterday in the afternoon, you were at an anti-occupation protest. That was anti-Israeli occupation of Palestine. As Medea talks about um, Ukraine, your final thoughts. So many things that were just said are about what should happen in an ideal world. Sadly, we do not live in that ideal world. We're dealing with Putin. You just said, Medea, that what we should be guarding against is a nuclear conflagration because if we don't go to, the, uh, to, go to peace talks. Why are we afraid of nuclear war? It's because Putin is a monomaniacal, autocratic, imperialist ruler. That's why. And if we, we, one of the things we do in the Ukraine Solidarity Network is that we are in direct contact with people on the ground in Ukraine. Also, we are in direct contact with dissident Russians who don't live in Russia because if they did, they would either be in prison or dead. But these are socialists. These are people with whom we share politics. I'm a socialist. The Combahee River Collective was a socialist, a black feminist socialist statement or a black socialist feminist statement. We listen to the people who are actually on the ground in those nations. Barbara Smith, we're going to have people, to leave it there, yes. but we're going to continue yes. our conversation and post it at democracynow.org. Barbara Smith, author, activist, scholar, part of the Ukraine Solidarity Network, and Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the anti-war group Code Pink. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.